0: Bienvenidos, ahora está escuchando el Paseo Podcast, donde destacamos las historias de, por y para la comunidad puertorriqueña.
1: Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeiser de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else, podcasts, or stream, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the Diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Lolita Lebron. Her name elicits strong responses from many within and outside the Puerto Rican community. She passed away on August 1st, 2010, but her memory lives on today in the minds of many Puerto Ricans, especially here on Paseo Boricua. I remember growing up and hearing the name Lolita Lebron, but often got small bits and pieces of information. So before her 100th birthday this coming November 19th, I decided to investigate a bit more by talking to people who knew her personally and who carry her memory with them in their work today.
2: El primero de noviembre de 1950, dos nacionalistas puertorriqueños, Griselio Torresola y Óscar Collazo tirotearon la Casa Blair, residencia del presidente Truman en Washington. Este ataque era parte de la revolucion proindependencia que se desarrollaba en la isla. El primero de marzo de 1954, Cuatro nacionalistas puertorriqueños tirotearon el Congreso de los Estados Unidos para llevar a un nivel internacional la lucha por la liberación del pueblo puertorriqueño. Los medios de comunicación de los Estados Unidos presentaron los incidentes como actos de fanáticos o criminales. Estos dos ataques armados constituyen para los nacionalistas acciones de valor y sacrificio supremo por parte de patriotas.
1: We have some new and returning guests for today's episode. Joining us today, are executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago, Jose Lopez, artist and activist Michael Reyes, whose song Lolita You May Cry Now you will hear later in the episode, former political prisoner Oscar Lopez Rivera, co-jefas of Lolita Productions, Brianna Ramirez-Smith and Marisa Diaz-Arce. And a part of my interview that will drop next week in full with actors Viviana Torres, Nore Feliciano, and Ifrain Rosa from the play Un Monologo Sobre La Vida de Lolita Lebron. That's a lot of guests. So we're going to try our best to balance everyone's interviews so you have the best possible listening experience. But first... We're gonna take a trip back in time and get some context from Jose Lopez. We are here in the Puerto Rican Cultural Center studios. I am here with Jose Lopez. Jose, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today?
2: Very well, thank you.
1: Great, good, we're so happy to have you. Uh, For those that do not know who you are, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and what you do?
2: Well, I am Jose Lopez, I'm the executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. I'm one of the founders of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. There were a number of us that founded this in 1972, uh, 73, and the Cultural Center has existed Uh, since then. Our first initiative was obviously the creation of the Dr. Pedro Alviso Campos High School, which is one of the oldest alternative schools in Chicago now. And after that, we started to create an umbrella organization that is basically premised on three principles, the self-determination of the Puerto Rican people, the self-actualization of the Puerto Rican people, and the self-reliance of the Puerto Rican people.
1: Can you give us a little bit of a, a brief timeline of who Lolita Lebron was?
2: So Lolita was born on November 19, 1919. Uh, November nineteenth, obviously, in Puerto Rico, in the traditional calendar, it marks the so-called discovery of Puerto Rico Day, because it was the day that Columbus arrived on the island in 1493 on his second voyage. And so from that vantage point, it obviously um, would perhaps even influence who she would become. Uh, whether whatever we may think of that day, the fact is that that is where the trajectory of the genesis of who we are as a people, from uh, that are informed by the bondage uh, of colonialism and the oppression of the indigenous population and the oppression of the um, African population, but we are the products of all the syncretic. Process of all of that. Lolita was born in a in Lares, Puerto Rico, which is also very symbolic because on September twenty third, eighteen sixty eight, that's where the first major uh, uprising for Puerto Rican independence takes place. Lolita um, apparently was a very beautiful young woman, and she was beautiful all the way through. I, I mean, the last time I saw her was a few months before her death. She was still a beautiful woman, but an extremely, extremely intelligent woman. Uh, obviously, she was never able to finish her uh, schooling. Uh, she had to leave um, to um, New York to earn a her living as many Puerto Ricans to work as a seamstress. She was a wonderful seamstress and um, one accolades even from her bosses because she was so uh, good at what she did. And one of the things that people perhaps don't know is that in Puerto Rico the needlework industry uh, and sewing was a major industry that developed very early as the industry that in many ways, obviously, was used um, to, to make women wage earners, but it also gave them a sense of um, their own ability to earn money, um, even though it was not that much. But there is, in Puerto Rico, this trajectory of, obviously, a core relationship between sort of women's ability to to get out of being a domestic s- servant literally to becoming a self-actualized woman by earning her own um, her own keep. And so in many ways Lolita became, through that process, very uh, talented and skillful at uh, being a seamstress. She went to work in New York in the 1940s as a seamstress. And in 1945, Albizu Campos came out of prison. He was placed in a hospital because he was very ill um, in New York and spent there two years in a hospital between 1945 and 47. In 47, he returned to Puerto Rico. Albizu Campos had been charged with seditious conspiracy. In 1936, uh, he was the president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. And in New York, there was a very active Puerto Rican nationalist uh, grouping, small but very active. But this group was also supported by people like um, Vito Marcantonio. Vito Marcantonio is a legendary person. Uh, He was a congressman from um, the area of Puerto Rico, where the Spanish, the Puerto Rican community known as El Barrio. And he represented an area that was Italian and Puerto Rican. And very early he became a major supporter of Puerto Rican independence. On several occasions, actually in the US Congress, he introduced legislation to make Puerto Rico an independent nation and became a major supporter of Pedro Alviso Campos. Um, he was a left wing uh, 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 politician, and in the 30s, 40s, and f- early 50s, there was an upsurge of progressive politics in New York, and he was part of that uh, process. And um, so New York was literally a place where a lot of Puerto Rican nationalists came together, and that included um our great poet Julia de Burgos it included our great uh, the national poet of Puerto Rico Juan Antonio Correjer uh, it included Consuelo Lee Correjer the woman who would become uh, the wife of Juan Antonio it included a series of very prominent uh, Puerto Ricans who um, I mean in the case of Juan Antonio he came out of prison and he lived in New York they actually had a newspaper um, that he and um, uh, <clears throat> Julia de Burgos co-edited called Pueblos Hispano, sort of a left-wing publication that really focused on the situation of Latin America. As a matter of fact, there's a really famous picture of Socrates Sandino with um, Corred here in 19. 19- um 28. This is prior to him going to prison in New York City, um raising funds for the Sandinistas in um Nicaragua. And Socrates Sandino was the brother of um of Sandino, um the great leader of the Nica- of the Nicaraguan rebellion. But anyhow, I, I put this in the context of Lolita coming into New York, being exposed to these politics and ultimately ending up becoming a member of the Nationalist Party. And she never met Pedro Alviso Campos, but Pedro Alviso Campos knew about her activism. And so in um, 1954, uh, she uh, receives a letter um, that was secretly sent to her by Pedro Alviso Campos Telling her that she had to do something and that he had the confidence in her of all the people um, to uh, be able to call the attention of the world um, in relationship to the um, situation that Puerto Rico was facing. On July 25th, 19. Uh, 1952, the Estado Libre Asociado had been created, something that the Nationalist Party denounced as a cover-up for colonialism, and we proved that in 2016, the world got an idea that Pedro Albizu Campos was correct and the Nationalists were correct when PROMESA, the latest organic act of Congress, was adopted. But that said, um, Lolita received this letter uh, sent um, secretly to her that she had to do something because in 1953 the United States went to the United Nations and declared that the colonial case of Puerto Rico ended and that the United Nations should recognize this and that Puerto Rico should be taken out of the um, non the the non-governing territories, which means... They, they, it was taken out of the Committee on Decolonization to deliberate on U.S. moves to decolonize Puerto Rico. Then he no longer had to render any reports to the U.N. And so Alviso wanted something dramatic. Alviso didn't outline what needed to be done. He literally left it up to her. It was Lolita's idea.
1: Do these, if I can interrupt sure. you really quickly, Jose... The letters that Pedro wrote, is do those letters exist anywhere? Are they in a museum? No. Are they
2: in an archive no. somewhere? This, is, this okay. is only because she said this. So there we is have no, no letter. Of knowing what? that is. no uh-huh. evidence of okay. this. It was a secret letter. It was, intended, it was intended for her to tear her up and destroy it. It would have been evidence. But what I want to say is that all that she told me is... He didn't say to her, go and attack the U.S. Congress. He says to her, we must do something dramatic, and it's in your hands. So it was her idea, and she says it very clearly in an interview that the, the, the media does right after the arrest, whose idea was this? And she says, it was my idea. It was the four of us idea. So they came up with the idea of attacking the U.S. Congress, not with the intention to kill, but the intention to dramatically call um, the world's, and put Puerto Rico in the map of the media and say Puerto Rico is still a colony of the United States. It was a cry for a recognition that colonialism was alive and well. What Lolita and the Nationalists did in nineteen on, on March first, nineteen fifty-four, was to say, Puerto Rico is a colony, the US is lying to the world. The US had taken push a vote at the United Nations in which the majority of the vote was really abstentions, because people knew that this was something that was not true. The nations of the world knew that. And so even though it passed, it passed by a a polarity not of the entire, I mean, not of the entire world because most of the nations abstain. The majority of the nations abstain. So, so, so why not, why in not? other words, oh, what right. she did at that moment was actually, a, you know, she led a stunning, uh, dramatic, um, attack on the U.S. Congress with the idea that it was to call the attention of the world. And obviously after that, she's charged with seditious conspiracy and would spend the rest of her... Uh, for 25 years, she was in prison along with Rafael Cancer Miranda, Irving Flores, Andres Figueroa Cordero. Um, and before that, obviously uh, in prison was uh, Oscar Collazo, who had attacked... The Blair House on November first, nineteen fifty.
1: Just going back a little bit. So you said uh, the, it passed with a majority vote because a lot of people abstained from from that vote. Mm-hmm. Why not vote nay?
2: Very good question. Because of the pressure that the U.S. had on those nations. The I I don't have the evidence, but I am told that the ambassador of El Salvador decided to cast his vote in English to really protest that he was being forced, um, because obviously most nations at the UN speak their own language, because he was being forced um, to take that vote. Uh, so the U.S. power at the UN was very, very I mean, it was a very powerful—the um, uh, the U.S. literally um, control yeah. the U.N. and it's the, possible, the outcomes of the U.N. So if you voted uh, no, it meant your aid and a lot of things would be cut.
1: Yeah. Well, in the whole U.N.'s formation after the World War, you look at who came out on top— yeah. out of that, who yeah. benefited the most right. from that. Not to say people actively were fighting for war, right. but the United States kind of came out on it, top, it, economically, well,
2: global power. It became like, the global power um, because of the Bretton Woods Agreement. In other words, yeah. in the Bretton Woods Agreement, it was agreed that the U.S. dollar would become almost the medium of international trade.
1: So it would make sense with that economic, with Absolutely. that global And just remember, force, in
2: 1954... Awesome. The US, the CIA had overthrown the government of Iran and placed the Shah of Iran there, had overthrown the government of Jacobo Arbenz. So Mossadegh in Iran was overthrown, which really is the root cause of all the problems you're having with Iran today. And in the case of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz was overthrown, and the problems you're having today in Guatemala are deeply rooted in that event of 1954. So 1954 is a very spectacular year. Yeah.
3: This is the chamber of the House
0: of Representatives within a few moments after it was emptied, still showing the aftermath of the wild hail of bullets by fanatic Puerto Rican nationalists observers regarded a miracle that more were not heard in the crowded chamber by maniacs firing at close range under heavy guard are the would-be assassins mrs lolita lebron who boldly claims she's instigator of the murder plot seized with her in the visitors gallery andrew carderos another who brazenly sprayed bullets on unsuspecting congressman is rafael miranda A fourth member of their group evaded capture in the House chamber. He's Irving Foray's arrested soon after the attack in a Washington bus terminal.
1: We are here in the Puerto Rican Cultural Center studio. We have Viviana from a monologue on Lolita Lebron. Uh, Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So for listeners that have only ever heard Lolita Lebron in passing, Growing up on Paseo Boricua, we have a lot of imagery of Lolita. We have spaces named after her here. Um, So that name has had weight in this community. Um, But outside of this community, when I hear Lolita's name, it's like, oh, she tried to kill some uh, Congress members. She tried to kill uh u.s representatives um so That's i think this is correct so this is why i wanted to to bring this up because you when we hear about how history is shared mm-hmm. and how it's passed on whose history are we hearing right. and is it to fit a narrative or is it to tell the truth right. so how are we so with this monologue i think it really gives us some really good insight into who she was so that we do have that correct understanding of this woman. What is the real story of Lolita Lebron? What should people know? Who was she?
0: Well, Lolita uh, was born in Lares, and she emigrated to the state in the time in Puerto Rico that a lot of people emigrated. Um, And she started working in factories. And uh, she saw all the injustices and all uh, the racial discrimination that were with Latinos. And at the same time, she started learning about the Nationalist Party and Albizu Campos and everything. So she started to get involved. And um, in that involvement, she became really active. And Pedro Albizu Campos chose her uh, for a very important mission because the Nationalist, the Nationalist Party back then, the way that they managed to uh, put that message out there was with few missions, like mm-hmm. with yeah bombs and mm-hmm. guns and stuff like that. It was their, the way that the party believed that the message was going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And um, so the mission that she was... Uh, asked to do was to command a group of people to walk into Congress and to shoot at the ceiling. And the purpose was to bring attention to the Puerto Rican colonial state and to draw attention from the people and say hey here we are we're being stepped on we do not want to be a colony anymore we have a lot of problems politically in Puerto Rico and we need you to pay attention to us and we want our country to be free and the way they did that was opening fire in the Congress but the instructions were to shoot to the ceiling. Um, She was accompanied by three other men Andres Figueroa, Irving Flores, and Rafael Cancer Miranda. There were four of them. Um, so as I was saying, it was basically a suicide mis- mission. They were very clear that they were not going to come alive out of that. Um, but they did because what they did was um, they uh, the policeman just arrested them. And the go- the boys of the group they did decide to shoot down mm. at the congressman. So there were some people hurt, and they were detained because if those people died, they were gonna have the death penalty mm. as a you know as a punishment.
1: So you play Lolita in this play. Yes, I do. How in the heck did you end up in this role?
0: <laughs> well. It all started with a photographic project because I did my MFA in photography and I specialized in self-portraits. So I did this project that is called Self-Portraits as Puerto Rican Women. And what I did was I took uh, an original picture of women like Julia de Burgos, Lola Rodriguez de Tio. And I recreated the photograph uh, using myself, like a self-portrait. And one of those women in the, the project was Lolita Lebron. So I did a research in each woman so I could do the project, and I found that there was little information on Lolita. People hardly knew who she was. And I found it necessary to... Communicate her message and her story because it's a beautiful story of resistance and uh, the fight for independence of our country. Um, so I just sat down with my father because I have a theater company and I've been doing theater for 17 years now. And I work very closely with my father. He, he writes some of the plays. He does the sets for some of our plays. Wow. So I was like, Dad, we have to do something with Lolita. It's necessary. It's important. And uh, we just, I, I didn't even know. I, I said, I don't know. How are you gonna do this? I just want the end, end the play with saying, "Yo no vine a matar a nadie, yo mm. vine a morir por Puerto Rico." Mm. Like I, I knew that was, that has to be the end. You work it out. <laughs> you, the, the rest is up to you. <laughs> so um, we started researching. We found uh, contact for the family. Um, they opened the doors of their house to us. Uh, we did a few, more than a few interviews with them from knowing the color of the, the clothes that she wore for the attack Um stories from jail the tortures the tortures everything that she went through
1: if i can interrupt you for a second yeah. when you were talking you mentioned like getting getting the design the costume design down yeah. even to the color yeah the only videos i've seen of lolita are in black and white yes so for those listening like you really had to research to figure out what these colors were
3: our
0: only um, reference yeah were pictures in black and white my gosh so. Yeah.
1: Okay, so a lot of research has gone into this. A lot
0: of research. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of research for me as an actress because I play uh, young Lolita. And when she did the attack, she was 35 years old, like three years older than I am right now. Um, and there's not a lot of... Like the video that you saw, like I got the voice and the accent also from few videos that the, the little information that it is online from, from her... And for me, talking to the family and trying to get to know her through the people that were closest to her, um, it helped me a lot to build this character of this woman that existed. Because my biggest fear was that a lot of people that were going to see the play knew Lolita, shared time with her, and I was so scared because it's a big responsibility to carry on this character, this woman that so many people loved. So my biggest worry was to make justice to the figure and the memory of her. Did you shoot to kill or to
2: wound? Did you shoot to kill the peasants
4: and the founders of the
5: Not to kill.
4: What story.
2: was the purpose of this shooting? The purpose of the shooting was the of freedom for my country. Well, Miss, can you tell us whose idea this was? Not that. It's my idea
3: and our idea, four of us ideas. Are you sorry to uh-huh. shut these five congressmen? How about
5: you, Mr. LeBron? I am not sorry. What's
2: you say, miss?
1: I'm not sorry to come and ask freedom from my country anyway. So fast-forwarding a little bit, from 1954, Lolita and the rest of the crew get arrested. Lolita gets charged with seditious conspiracy. And
2: then when does she get released from prison? She got released on September of 1979. I should say... It's a very important event in Lolita's life. And that is that in 1957, she wrote a handwritten letter to the President of the United States, President Eisenhower. And in this letter, it's it's entitled, A Message from God for the 20th Century. The message, because she's a mystic, and the message was stop nuclear proliferation, stop the development of nuclear weapons. We, this could be the end of the world. And she said that she received this message from God and sent a letter to President Eisenhower and for a number of years, she was placed inside of an insane asylum within the prison. She was isolated. She was declared to be crazy. And this is what Lolita had to confront because she articulated a position that became a major... No one was talking about nuclear proliferation and the impact of nuclear weapons. This woman did in 1957. I mean, that's how visionary she was. And yet she would be punished for that. And punished in a way that not only did Lolita have to suffer in this literally insane asylum treated like a crazy woman, but she was raped in that prison. Mm. And this is something that rarely we have discussed. Because one of the things that people have to understand is Uh, I went to visit Lolita um, in Alderson. Uh, My ex-wife went to visit Lolita in Alderson. My second child is named Lolita, after Lolita LeBron. My youngest, my oldest daughter went to visit Lolita when she was just a little child. And we have had a very, very close and intimate relationship for years. And Rolita never revealed this to anyone. Um, she gave me... Um, I mean, she told me a lot of things that happened to her. And um, they even try to do everything possible to make her appear to be mentally ill. And... Um, Ultimately, she even tells me where they um, a person visited her, who began to try to get an amorous relationship with her, um, and it was a agent of the U.S. government to try to get her to admit that she was guilty. She never allowed that to happen. I mean, she was made an offer and refused it. Um, She lost her child, her son, and her son drowned in a river in Laris. And they did not let her know until nine days later when she was going to... um, Go to to try well when they were doing the preliminary hearings. So she, the a way to do that was to break her down. Everything was done to break Lolita down, to to really break her spirit. Her daughter would ultimately die of a horrible accident in nineteen seventy eight. Her brother betrayed her. Her brother was used as a government witness against her in the trial so there's so many stories of Lolita in terms of betrayal in terms of I mean having to face the death of her two children while in prison but her composure um, and Uh, on Saturday when a young poet from here, Michael Regis, wrote a poem uh, to her, uh, Lolita, You May Cry Now, was really to tell her that all those years in prison, she said she never cried. It was so they could never break her. Um, Lolita used to get up in the morning She would comb her hair. She would always put lipstick. She was always taking care of herself because she said they're not going to break my spirit. That's one um, of the
1: few ways that we have control, especially when so much control is taken away from you.
2: Exactly, Mm. And so here was a way to affirm her control.
6: Lolita, you may cry now Tears for the oppressed, hungry for food, knowledge, and hope Lolita, you may cry now Tears for the millions upon millions of indigenous peoples of the Americas Tears for those names, languages, customs, and cultures we will never know Lost like the leaves that fall into the streams and rivers Lolita, you may cry now Tears for the African slaves that were shackled, chained, raped, whipped Their backs dripping with red teardrops of their own Lolita, you may cry now Tears for those who worked and toiled Tears of sweat dripping into the soil that they bled to cultivate So others could prosper from their suffering Lolita, you may cry now Tears for the massacres broken treaties, diseases, death, stolen land, and nature. Lolita, you may cry now. Tears for the murdered Mexicans, lynched, hung, dragged, cut, and shot in what is known as the Southwest of the United States. Lolita, you may cry now. Tears for those who worked the large sugar and coffee plantation and never had a chance to taste either. Lolita, you may cry now. Tears for the cries of independence and freedom on September 16th, 1810. Grito de Dolores. Tears for Grito de Lares, September 23rd, 1868. Lolita, you may cry now. Tears for...
1: The clip you just heard was from Lolita, You May Cry Now, a song written by Michael Reyes. He goes by the artist name Reyes. Michael, thank you for being on the Paseo podcast today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? What should they know about Michael Reyes?
7: Yeah, so um, my artist name is Reyes. Uh, You can always find my work at Reyes Poetry. Um, But I was a part of formulating and creating um, an institution here on Paseo Boricua called Bate Urbano. Um, I was one of the co-founders along with multiple people um, that came up with this concept to create kind of like an alternative outlet for young artists, in particular in the Puerto Rican Latinx community. Um, And we did a lot of work around self-determination, self-actualization, self-realization through art and culture. Um, And so I did that for close to 10 years um, and produced a lot of events, a lot of performances, uh, did a lot of poetry events, um, hip-hop events, So that was really the background, was like working with young folks. And
1: you said you weren't born and raised in Chicago, but you migrated here from Michigan, right?
7: Yeah, so in 2001, I moved here, Um, I was 21 years old. And uh, I remember just uh, taking an AmeriCorps job and um, they were like, hey, we're gonna send you to this place, Division Street, and I got off the bus. I saw these huge Puerto Rican flags. And, you know, I guess if you're Puerto Rican, you know, because I'm Mexican, if you're Puerto Rican, that might, like, do something to your soul. But for me, I was just like, oh, those are nice. Um, (laughs) I had no connection to them. Now, you know, when I see them, it's like, you know, it's like a holy relic, right? It's like going to a cathedral when you see the flags and come in. You have to turn the radio down or turn any sound off. And as you pass under the flags, you're back home. Very somber, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I had no connection to Puerto Ricans and, You know, my mentor, Jose Lopez, was really quick at connecting me to different projects and programs. And then later on, uh, down the line, fast forward, I became um, somewhat of a coordinator for the uh, National Burrico Human Rights Network, working on the political prisoner campaigns, um, both Carlos Alberto and Oscar Lopez Rivera. And that took me into writing a play and interviewing, you know, all like, I don't know, like close to like 12 out of the 14 political prisoners. Toured that play for a number of years It took me to Puerto Rico, we traveled to Venezuela, Mexico City, we produced it in New York. I mean, we did the the play about 140 times. And it was all about the experience of the Puerto Rican political prisoners. I interviewed every one of them, and we probably like, man, I must have spent hours just interviewing them about, you know, what does it feel like um, when you're locked in a cell alone and you're isolated for like 60 days? Like, what does that do to you? What does it feel like? Uh, to find out that your mother passed and you can't go to the funeral. Like, what does it feel like, you know, when maybe one of your comrades is injured by physically, right? Um, what does that feel like when you get that news? Um, but more importantly, like, how do you survive in a day-to-day situation like prison? And so that's why we called it Crime Against Humanity. Um, and as a part of that, you know, I got to learn about all the political prisoners, you know, during that time period, Filiberto J. Rios, you know, Head of the Macheteros was, was assassinated and killed. Um, and I wrote a poem called Blood Dries Black for that. Uh, but with Lolita Lebron, um, you know, I didn't really know about her um, until I moved. And that's the reason I kind of brought the flags up is that it opened up this whole wealth of knowledge, right, about Puerto Rican history and culture that I had no idea. You know, like I knew a little bit on the periphery about Puerto Ricans. I Had a few Puerto Rican friends in Saginaw, which is where I grew up. Um, so your you first,
1: know. so your first exposure to the name Lolita Lebrón was when yeah, you here first heard Fran
7: Paseo. Yeah, I mean, I might have heard about her maybe before, but it wasn't anything that like stood out to me. You know, like I was just like, oh yeah, okay, another Latino name you need to know. Um, but Lolita is like one of those people that, just like Malcolm X or you know any of these other figures that transcend, kind of. Like, yes, yeah, she belongs to the Puerto Rican people, but she's at that space where she also belongs to the world, right? And so she has this, this like, just meeting her. Um, you know, the first time I met her, um, we were in Puerto Rico. And, uh, I mean, actually, no, the first time I met her was here on Paseo Boricua. They had invited her, and they were like, hey, we're going to do this dinner. And... Um, we're over here at uh, at uh, one of the restaurants here on Paseo, and we're, like, just eating, and, you know, Lolita's there in the middle, and it's kind of surreal because now I had understood what her role was. You know, in, in 1954, she led a group of men into the U.S. Congress and opened fire, um... Mainly to like bring up the the issue of like uh, colonization, right? So the U.S. was about to de like basically say they didn't have any colonies and change to this new free associated state or whatever like the terminology is for what Puerto Rico is, and you know she was one of the people that led that movement into Congress, and you know there's a story of her like she definitely was leading those men into a, a combat zone in a sense, right? Like they're going in to give and sacrifice. Um, and the point wasn't to hurt anybody. Obviously, um, you know, like especially now in 2019, like at that time in the world, you know, there's there's people struggling for their independence everywhere. Right, that time period is really volatile. So they go in. She shoots into the ceiling. Um, she's arrested, and then she's taken to a um, actually a male prison. Um, and you know, you can, you can use your imagination, right? You can use your imagination of how they would treat. Uh, a Puerto Rican in 1954. Uh, one thing about Lolita is Lolita's uh, like even then, you know, um, you know, up until her passing, is a very beautiful woman, um, and you can see like in the structures of like patriarchy and power, what do you want to do to a beautiful woman, right? How do you um, want to assert your power? Um, and so there's like you know these experiences that she goes through uh, while she's in prison. Um, but one thing about Lolita during this dinner, she goes, you know, I spent 25 years in prison. At this point, she had been out 25 years. So you're talking about a 50, wow. 50 year window. And she said, um, you know, I refuse to cry. They never they never made me cry, you know. They never see me cry. And she goes, now that I'm home, it's hard for me to cry. Like it's very a difficult emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lolita was also a poet. So she we did a poetry show for her at the bate. Um, and I wanted to do something for her that I felt like captured her story without having to be, um, without having to necessarily like, you know, just ABC it. And so, like thinking about that imagery of her not crying, I created this poem, that You May Cry Now. Um, Which I heard for the first time at
1: Jose Lopez's (laughs) birthday. Uh, which was a really fun event. You came up, you were you were spitting a uh, hot fire. I loved <laughs> I loved the, the poem. Um, and you said you, if I'm hearing you right, you wrote that shortly after you met Lori. I wrote that the
7: day after. Wow. Because she had a show the next day. And so I wrote that in a night. I mean, I wrote that probably like in under, I don't know, it took me an hour. But that's the best poetry. That's great. Well, like, the thing is, it's great and it's not because they're also, you know, some, wow, some yes. of my poet <laughs> friends like edit and uh-huh. cut and I'm just like, I create and I'm like, that's what it is. Yeah. And of course, you know, you, you like, as things move forward, you reshape it and do things, but sure. you might Have you altered
1: something. it at all from when you first wrote it to... No. Nah, okay.
7: It's been the same. I, yeah. I didn't change it. Even when I read it uh, at Jose's 70th uh, birthday party, I didn't change anything. Even if it was out of context at that point, as far as, like, who is the bate, Like, like... If you're not in, if you read that as just somebody that's like lived in New York or somewhere else, you might not know. But I thought it was important to keep that.
1: I think that's valid. And when we read poetry today, there's all types of references where you don't necessarily understand the context within our world today. So it totally makes sense. Yeah. So definitely want to give our audience a chance to hear that, which we will play later on in the show. Uh, There is a number of different things that you brought up in that piece that really stood out to me. The story about her not wanting to see or show other people her crying, Mm -hmm. I think is super significant. Um, I I think that a lot of people can relate to that. I think as people of color, we face a certain level of adversity in society in general. Mm -hmm. And we try to really put on this tough face, um, which I think is needed in some spaces but also the importance of having a support system where you can kind of let your guard down. So I can only imagine for someone like Lolita being in solitary confinement, being in prison in general, even in a male prison mm-hmm. to be isolated from the world that she knows. Mm-hmm. That must have just been such a mental strain on her.
7: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean like I mean I, I, I wouldn't say like Lolita was my friend, but I definitely interacted with her three times and got to. I made her cry, definitely made her cry. I read that poem to her uh, twice. Um, you know, there's some somewhere in my archives, I have Lolita saying great things about that poem. Yeah. So one day I thought to release that, um, you know, so, the, awesome. so, you know, like reading that to her and, and seeing her like that stirring emotion for her was really powerful. It's like there's this presence. I, I'm sure there's a word for it. I don't have the word for it. But there's just a presence that some people carry um, and you could feel it with her. They said this uh, Juan Antonio Correja, they said, had the same presence. Um, it's just a certain dignity that people carry themselves with and you can feel it. It's like they almost carry the light. Um, and you could feel that with her, you know, like anytime you're in a room with her, it's not that she filled the room up, you know, like a lot of times we have these descriptions with celebrities. Oh, they like, it's just that there was a presence and aura about her. And the word is dignity, right? There's such Mm -hmm. a dignity that she carried herself with. Um, And so I read that poem to her. She read her poetry. We helped produce a book for her. And I can't remember who was involved with the book project, but you know, people from the cultural center organized it. And then um, fast forward, I'm in Puerto Rico doing interviews for this play. Um, And I actually, I interviewed, I don't know, I think 12 of the 14 political prisoners from the (laughs) 80s. Um, In particular, the ones attached to um, the ones that were um, incarcerated in 80, 81, I think eighty-three. I think um, in in Chicago, and New York, and you know, even in that when I was interviewing those folks, you know, like really the men were the ones that actually cried. So I think there was a tradition mm-hmm. from the women's side that you know, like especially in a, like in patriarchy, like there's these pressures, right, mm-hmm. that you have to kind of like hold face, but all like a few of the the, the male prisoners actually cried on tape. Um, But the women actually were like, you know, I think they had already rehearsed in their head of how they have to react because how they would be viewed. So we're going in and and, uh, Jose is like, hey, we have to make a stop. I think, you know, we're going to go visit. We might be able to visit Lolita. I'm not sure. And so we kind of pull into this this house and Lolita is there and had prepared a meal for us. And at the time, uh, Filiberto Javier Rios widow, um, she was there as well. And there was an older nationalist that had, you know, I can't remember his name, but um, just these figures in Puerto Rican history that are all in the same room. And you're like, yo, where am I? What am I doing? So mm-hmm. I got to read the poem to her one, one more time face-to-face, um, which I thought was great. You know, it was like, it, it's like, you know, someone you read about. And a lot of people, you know, I see her on T-shirts and... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hear people talk about her like in programs and I see, you know, if I go to an event, they mention her. Um, but you're like, yo, I, I actually got to know Lolita a little bit, you know? Um, and I think, I think why she's important um, is one, you don't really have a lot of like highlighted experiences of women, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about like, you know, armed struggle or revolution or those sort of things. Um, And I think she represented that. There was some like, just like small things and details she told me, you know, like, why would she put makeup on while she was in Mm. prison, right? And she said, you always have to just take care of yourself and make sure for yourself, you know, like she was known for like this red lipstick. And you know, like in the woke era, it could be like, oh, why are you highlighting makeup? But I'm like, yo, like she told me, like she would do her hair and put makeup on. And it was important for her to get dressed every day. You know, I interviewed Oscar Lopez Rivera while he was still incarcerated. And I was like, yo, how do you why like why like what is the drive for you just to get ready every day? And he's like, if you do it for you because like that's the things you can control at a minimum. You can mm-hmm. control um yeah. how you're how you look, right? You can control if you shave or not. You can control if your clothes are clean. You can control in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um So like Lolita was very much also about that aesthetic of like, yo, you present yourself, um, and how you feel you're beautiful. What do Um, you think,
1: like, just from your interactions with her, from what you know of her, we are at a hundred years of her existence, um, birthday wise, she would have been a hundred years this week. Um, she's since passed. There are a generation of young people that probably could have benefited from those those same interactions that you had that Mm -hmm. will never get that chance. Are there any lessons that you feel um, people in the community from activists to artists to people that just want uh, to find purpose in life? Are there any lessons that you feel can be learned from the life that Lolita lived?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think like one thing for sure is that, you know, even after her 25 years in prison, she was still connected and engaged. And sometimes, you know, just the the, the harsh truth is also, I think, like, in some ways, um, you know, she had to fight for that space because she was a woman, you know, even coming home, you know, like, I think that there was still, that was still really relevant um, in our own movements, you know, like that sexism and those things were, were really, really, re- we're still like, you know, even now, obviously. But uh, for me, is that, she was still able to maintain her humanity. And I think that's the the biggest lesson is like, you go through this process, you're willing to struggle, and she knew what she was willing to give. Like it's like not, like all of those Puerto Rican political prisoners, I interacted with a lot of them, not just the ones from Chicago and New York, also like the Machateros and any of those, those folks. All of them, I think for the most part, understood what they were willing to give Um, And Lolita's like that, you know, like, but also coming out of that process of prison and, you know, we're not even just talking about them going, being like incarcerated. They were also being repressed earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Like Oscar goes underground, you know, multiple years before he's actually apprehended, you know, Mm -hmm. accidentally by, by the police, right? So there's another set of years you don't think about that they're disconnected. They had to be kind of like in secret, right? Just to maintain a level of of, of uh, being able to live like at least on a day-to-day outside. So I think with Lolita, her ability to still love and care, her ability to still love Puerto Rico, her ability to um, to be able to be human after an experience that's dehumanized. prison is dehumanizing. And I think... A lot of our elders, um, and now I'm an older, you know, you can be cynical. And, you know, with Lolita, at a minimum, she was one of those folks that was a unifier because of what she was willing to give, right? And so if you're in a room with her, it didn't matter if you had a political, ideological difference of where Puerto Rico should be. You had to respect what she, what she, what she represented and what she was willing to give. Um, but she came out of that with her humanity. I mean, she was writing poetry and... Mm. You know, she, she wasn't feeling well, um, and she still cooked, you know, and had food for us and opened her doors when she didn't have to, you know. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's also a credit to, to Jose Lopez's work here um, around the prisoners and still maintaining, like, you know, they reached out and were able to connect with the Nationalists. Um, and then, you know, they freed them, and then, you know, the next group goes in, and they freed them. And it's like, you know, that that continuity of being able to like, there's a whole generation of Puerto Ricans here that have got to know Lolita because of him, right? And that kind of echoes, if you think about it, what's crazy is like, you know, Jose Lopez is, you know, a mentee of Juan Antonio Correjer and Lolita, right? And then you reach back and they're they're connected to Pedro Vizu Campos and, you know, like they were moving in circles and you can reach back and be like, Juan Antonio Correjer was friends with Che Guevara and that's connected to another layer so in a in a way, if you think about these extensions, and we don't think about them in that way, like I'm I'm a student of Jose Lopez's, right? Like so now that connects me to that historical legacy, going back, you know, generations. And then I have young people that I work with that I hope I inspire, and that I'm, you know, taking the lessons that Lolita, or Jose, or any of these folks taught me. And at least, even at a minimal, there's a few lessons that they taught me that one of these young people is taking. And now they have young people that are 15, 14 that they mentor. And so (laughs) it's this really kind of line of generational knowledge that's important that gets lost. You know, had we not met Lolita, had I not experienced firsthand, um, you know, like it can easily die with our elders. But I think in this period, um, I think there's a lot of young folks that are searching, connecting, building. And so she's one name amongst yeah. a lot of people, right? Absolutely. Um, but she definitely is one of those kind of like folks that carry the light, that transcend not just, she doesn't just belong to Puerto Rico anymore, right? She belongs to the world in a sense that what she stood for, the values that she stood for, and that she was willing to go to prison and give her life because like, when they went in, they, they didn't think they were coming out. They were mm-hmm. like, yo, like they were going and... They were willing to give their life, um, and they gave it in a different way.
2: Lolita was a mystic, and most of us cannot understand mystics. Can you share a bit more about that side of her? mystics are extraordinary people. They believe that they are in communion with a godlike spirit, that they can communicate, that they can, that they're oracles in many ways. When we think of Cassandra in in the Greek world, when we think of the shamans of indigenous community, when we think of people who are able to transmit things that sometimes what, what we think as us mortals cannot conceive of or experience. Uh, this was who Lolita was. Um, she was truly a, a, a student of St. Teresa of Avila, one of the greatest mystics of all times.
1: A, a the doctor cath- of the church.
2: The only woman doctor of the mm-hmm. church. She was a student of of St. John of the Cross, one of the greatest mystics of all time. I mean, I was able to experience her mysticism in a way that it it almost transforms you. It was, um, in many ways, when you saw her, when you experienced her, it was like experiencing something supernatural. And and she carried herself that way. So I think um, there's a wonderful poem that um, Doña Consuelo Lee Correger writes about Lolita. And it's based on the beats of her rosary, um, how she would pray. And many ways we think of prayer as prayers, but we also have to think of prayers as a way of meditation, of entering our other realm of our lives, of experiencing another experience that's so real in our lives. That's what the, that um, the beads of the rosary became for Lolita Lebron. And she was able to survive all of this because she was a deep mystic. But she's always attributed all of this to the teachings of Pedro Albizu Campos, who was another great mystic. And they were informed by a rich tradition in the Catholic Church that dates back hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years of Catholic mysticism.
1: So with Lolita, she is obviously experiencing one traumatic experience or piece of news after the other and trying to keep her composure trying to show that she has control over her herself her body she's not crying when she's when she finds out about uh, these people she cares about especially her children passing away even family members betraying her so we're you've you've covered a lot of ground here with that pain, with that hardship, did she ever use her life experiences in a way that um, was put on paper or or video? Did she create? Did she paint? Did she? How did she? What was her creative outlet for? Her expressing creative that?
2: self was obviously her poetry. Lolita received an award for El Grito Primoroso, and it is a three hundred page book but it's one poem i don't know if anybody who has ever ever written a poem in that is that you know l- expensive in terms of space and how difficult it is because poetry is something you write in small pieces not in a narrative that is almost essay-like. But this is her poem. It's called El Grito Primoroso. And what is El Grito Primoroso? It is the cry that the mother makes when she has her child. It's It's the first thing that a child hears. And the idea behind this poem was for her to speak of Puerto Rico and the idea of birthing a Puerto Rican nation and the idea of Puerto Rico explained through a mystical process of of birth and the magic of birth. But what is also very interesting is her, the use of language. Lolita was an amazing wordsmithing person. She composed the most beautiful verses. When she spoke, she spoke with almost poetic lyrics. And um, a woman who had never studied, she was extremely well-read. And if you compare the poetry of Lolita with the poetry of one of the greatest Puerto Rican poets, Francisco Matos Pauli, who, by the way, was her first love. They were girlfriend and boyfriend in Lares. And I had an amazing opportunity to meet um, Francisco Matos Pauli. Francisco Matos Pauli is one of the greatest poets of Puerto Rico. He's one of the greatest mystical poets of all times. And they're worth wordsmithing, their ability to creatively express their feelings in a very mystical way that it's, again, it's not carnal, it's not r- real, but it, it's real at another level. I mean, this is the strength and greatness of Lolita as a writer uh, and as a thinker um and uh she was given an award in Mexico for this uh, work. Um and not many people know this about Lolita. When was this published again? Um it was pub- I think it was published around 2 I would I want to say like 2000 maybe about or somewhere around 2005 or 2006. I remember she came here and shared some of that poem with the young people here in El Bate Urbano, which is a youth space that promoted poetry and hip hop and creative expressions among our young people. And here is this woman way up in age having this amazing dialogue with these young people and... They were reading poetry to her, and she was reading her poetry to them.
1: Thank you for sharing all that, Jose. The last question that I want to ask you um, really came to me at your birthday celebration. Uh, someone was on stage, and they were sharing a story of when they first met Lolita, and they had flown to Puerto Rico, if I'm remembering the story correctly, with you. It was Michael and Rodriguez. It was Michael Rodriguez. Yeah. So Michael is uh retelling the story and he mentions how when you all went to visit lolita i can't remember the year but when you went to go visit her she was very sick yes and she was bedridden yes and that they were told the group was told that she you know she may not be moving a lot you may not get a lot out of her because she's so sick and that when you walked into the room a big smile was on her face she stood up she gave you a hug there was an embrace I think that, to me, spoke to the type of relationship you both had with one another. Obviously, over the course of decades, so I'd imagine there's got to be one story that or memory that you have that you would consider a favorite of yours with Lolita. And I'm sure there's many that you have to choose from. Oh my God! But if you could choose one, it it is so
2: difficult because I have so many incredible memories. Um, I. So for me, perhaps on a symbolic level, um, it was Lolita, when we took the statue of Pedro Alviso Campos from a little church that was located on California in Le Moyne, we were taking that statue and she led the procession. This is 1997. And she would lead a procession of hundreds and hundreds of people. We walked from California to where La Casita de Don Pedro, where we erected that statue, and where it still is, at, at 2625 West Division. Now, walking with her, accompanied by Pedro Alviso Campos, there was this amazing smile in her face that sort of immediately put me right back to the day she returned to Puerto Rico. And the day she returned to Puerto Rico, she went from the airport to the cemetery in San Juan where Albizu is buried. She kneeled and obviously kissed his burial site and said Maestro obra cumplida meaning teacher the mission is accomplished. And for me perhaps seeing her as a mystic she was walking with Albiso down a community that we had created for Albiso and for her. That was a momentous occasion. For me, it was like she was walking hand in hand with a man that she never met, mm. but she had a deep devotion to. And a man who she not only had a deep devotion to, what saw as a guiding symbol and a guiding light for Puerto Rico. And here, in the midst of the Puerto Rican community of Humble Park, a community that I have been so um, humbled to have served, that here we're walking, this woman as a free woman, and taking Albiso to his casita. And I would just add that um, obviously you spoke about my birthday, and this was my 70th, and I dedicated my birthday to her centennial. And I gave um, a T-shirt as a gift of a picture that was taken in 1997 with her and I, As um, we were marching, we were leaving the church with the statue.
1: Jose, thank you so much for sharing these stories. And thank you for giving us a glimpse into a life that has spanned, and the existence that has expanded years, generations, decades, what has become an iconic woman in the Puerto Rican community. We appreciate you taking the time to give us that insight. Thank Thank you. you. Learning about Lolita Lebron was one part of this episode. The other is exploring how her memory lives on today. The work Viviana Torres has put into Un Monologo Sobre La Vida de Lolita Lebron is a great example of this. Next week, I'm going to share my full interview with Viviana Torres and the rest of the crew, Ifraín Rosa and Nore Feliciano, who are also involved with the play. But that's next week. Right now, you and I are going to jump into an interview with the co hefas of Lolita Productions, Brianna Ramirez-Smith and Marisa Diaz-Arce. It is a Latina-owned company named after Lolita herself. So let's jump on in. We have two special guests in the building. We have the co-jefas of Lolita Productions, Brianna Ramirez-Smith and Marisa Diaz-Arce. Thank you for being on the show.
3: Thank you for having
1: us. Let's start with introductions of yourselves. Who are you both? What should our audience know about you?
3: Um, this is Brianna. Uh, I am as he said, co-hef of Lolita Productions. I'm also a project manager for my day job. Um, Lolita Productions began as a passion project for me uh, and has c- continued to be to be a a way for me to serve my community and build a community where um, that I didn't realize I was missing. And so I think that it's turned into something much bigger than Marissa and I. Um, And I'm super grateful for the opportunities that I've been given, as well as the ability to grow it. So
5: this is Marissa. I began with this adventure with uh, Brianna um, because of Carlos Jimenez Flores, which I believe um, you've, you've met or mm-hmm. probably has been on the podcast. He's been on the podcast yeah.
1: episode eleven out now. Yeah. <laughs>
5: so um <laughs> he he had uh had a a task. They were um having an event called Fieta de Maíz in Puerto Rico and they wanted for Chicago to have a uh, Fiesta de Maíz at the exact same time on the exact same day. And so Carlos because I had worked with him on the Boricua Film Festival, and I worked with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center on getting donations for the student for the um, students that came in from Puerto Rico for the Thanksgiving Parade last year, he reached out and he was like, "Hey, I didn't know this was still going to happen, but it's going to happen. Would you be Would you be down to help?" And because I, you know, I'm just down for you know, doing things at the last minute. I was like, yeah. And I reached out immediately to Brianna and I go, Hey, so would you be interested in doing this? Cause I kinda like finagled her into helping with the the, the kids who had came into from Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Yeah, I just need you to help me volunteer. And then she ended up like literally like running things because I got stuck downtown. Long story. But she <laughs> um she was like Okay, sure, and then we uh, contacted several um, artisans. So we had uh, Ada come in with her Somos Asi book, we had Casa Yari. we had Unique Suites, we had Es La Maestra, we were hosted at the Boathouse, and for we, people
1: that don't know what the boathouse is,
5: Humble Park Boathouse Cafe, which is located in the heart of um, our park, Humble Park, and serves as a a space to go and get coffee, you can get drinks, um, you can relax outdoors, beautiful scenery and you get a, a fantastic view of the skyline. Um, it's the second largest park in the city of Chicago, and so we're very fortunate to have it literally as our backyard. So um, that's, how, that's how Fiesta de Maíz started, and everyone was very happy because everyone was talking and there, we saw a lot of people having some really awesome conversations, and at the end, they had asked if this was something we could do again. And we looked at each other and we're like, like, do you wanna do this? And we're like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do it.
1: And this is before you had an official name. You didn't have, it wasn't branded as Lolita Productions yet, right?
3: So then this started our quest for a name. Um, Initially, it was a, I think we came up with the idea of using Mi Gente. Hmm. And like our Facebook, when you go, when we go in on our end, it still Mm -hmm. says Mi Gente. It's linked there. Um, Just because we're both really big uh, users or avid users back in the day of the website, Mi Gente.
1: I was just about to bring that up. Yes, yep. yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then because of that. MySpace. <laughs> <Before> <laughs>
3: MySpace.
1: Before, yeah, MySpace. Before MySpace. Good and Yeah. <laughs>
3: um, so it was Mi Gente, and then we thought of that association of like, it was kind of cool to have the association to that website, but then at the same time, you know, it's kind of very generic. Um, and then we started looking into who Lolita Lebron was, and who, should, like the spirit that, or the, what we thought that she embodied. And that is where we came up with the name Lolita in honor of her and then Productions. Uh, and that's where it was born. And literally our first event was a networking event in January of 2019.
1: Wow. And then, so what was the, what was the moment in your research as you're, as you're learning who Lolita LeBron is, or was, what is the moment that you thought this is it? This is the name we're going to go with?
5: Well, the Fiesta de Maíz is Lolita's event in Puerto Rico. Okay. So the event was something that she wanted to mm. happen um, with the idea in mind that we could sustain ourselves, mm-hmm. that we're a rich port, that if people came together, um, we could build community, we can, we can survive. And while Lolita wasn't someone that we knew, we had done the research while we were doing the Fiesta de Maiz because we wanted to pay respects to who she was. But also keeping in mind that this was a very powerful woman. And if we were going to take on her name, that we needed to make sure that we did it right. Because... Lolita is not someone to play with. Mm -hmm. And so with that said, that meant that we ourselves needed to become Lolita-like. And while we didn't go into this with that in mind, throughout the process of really getting to know her um, and researching her, especially with our Centenario event coming, that we... um, that we started to embody things and aspects about her, Uh, speaking up for things that we believe is right, bringing community together, looking out for children, really having a home base and really that we could sustain ourselves, we can support each other. And that's where the bodega concept came, where we were like, What if we we put on each other the way we put on brands? Mm -hmm. Like everyone's so quick to like, you know, sport the newest uh, brand that's coming out. They're standing in lines to get some gym shoes or a new phone. What if we put that energy into the people who we actually know that are hustling to really get themselves out there? And we know so many of them. We already do it naturally. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of merged something that we already were doing but now creating a space for those people to showcase their talents and put them on.
1: So this is a question for both of you. You said you were already kind of cultivating a network of people just in your everyday life. Lolita Productions is not your full-time gigs, right? What, are you, what, what is your day job?
3: So I'm a project manager for a um, Pilsen-based food manufacturer um which entails, you know, product innovation, some of marketing, um and that all has helped me with what I'm doing here. I have a background in customer service as well. Uh, I spent probably about a good 15 years in customer service and it helps with my interaction with all the vendors and with the, the consumers that we meet on a daily basis or on a, at each event, because it's, it's rough dealing with the general public at times. And that background really, really gets me through.
1: Mm. What about you, Marissa? Mm.
3: So
5: I also, at one point in time, I worked with Brianna back in the day. We started off working with each other in customer service in retail, and then we
1: in Pilsen as well. And then we we actually yeah,
5: and then in Pilsen, and then we
3: realized that wasn't such a great idea. (laughs) Yes,
5: (laughs) however, it also you know reminds me that we we have always worked with each other, right? Mm -hmm. She's always she's been a very big part of my life, especially because of my daughters, and so she's just always been there in in that sense. But um, I ended up then going into education. So I believe that that's where my calling was. And through my, um, I've been teaching 12 years now. I've taught in uh, private daycare to middle school and in the middle school setting, I taught um, reading, math, science, everything, a little bit of everything, which prepared me for the unexpected. Like you're just constantly like on the go. And then I was given an opportunity to teach an entrepreneurship class and get kids thinking about small businesses and fulfilling a need within their community and creating a business out of that. So then before all of this kind of happened, I hosted an event where I had 110 eighth graders. Uh, I had 28 groups. I did this completely on my own. Jeez. And I say, I want to say completely on my own. I meaning I was their instructor. Mm-hmm. And so.
1: You said it was 108?
5: 110 8th graders. 110 graders. Yes. 28 groups wow. of students. And so I was teaching 5th through 8th grade technology. So I was also teaching other stuff to other kids but through this um it's called network for teaching entrepreneurship is a non-for-profit i was able to get kids thinking about business which in turn got me thinking about business because if you teach about it then you got to know about it and i was i was i feel like that's definitely lended its hand with what we're currently doing because i understand like how to start a business. Um, these students then went on to competition. I also then went out into, I went to networking mixers, and I started uh, recruiting everyday people who were going there to like get jobs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not here for a job. I'm hosting this event at my school and I need judges. And nice. so I, it was like a shark tank event. So okay. I had three judges, kids had two minutes, they pitched their idea, and they had a trifold board, so it was like a science fair. And each, each group had an app that supported their business. So not only were they starting and like pretty much had like a mission statement and all of these you know important aspects of a business, but they also had a ma- uh, an app that they were uh, showcasing. It was a prototype. Brianna was also a judge at that.
1: That's <laughs> fantastic. No, go ahead, Brianna. Bri- it was yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> was like it?
3: honestly, to to be a judge and to watch all these kids and like we had criteria to judge them on, and you were in groups of like three, mm-hmm. but it was super cool to to be able to do it and to see all the work that they put in, and you could tell who was really av- like avidly into what they were doing and who just did it because they had to.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, like the girl that won was a girl who her dad was a truck driver, and so she created an app that. Could, that would tell you where low-lying bridges were mm. so you could avoid it which is super cool it's
1: a great app i mean i've seen a lot of truck drivers just getting roofed on on a bunch yes. of bridges throughout so this the city is
3: exactly what the problem
5: was it was you know you saw the problem was that they were on their way to school and mm. a a truck hit a low-lying thing and that's a problem so what how can we solve that problem? And then, mm-hmm. so it changes the way people start thinking about the world that we live in. It changes it from being, oh man, this sucks, to, oh, There's an opportunity in this problem and so it was beautiful to see i mean kids came up with logos some kids had like t-shirts that they did business cards that they made Um, they went on to a night event where they competed against other other students from other uh, schools Um, there's a high school version of this as well where students then go on to nationals and they're they're mentored throughout the summer and then they go to New York, where they actually can win money to start their business. And so when I saw that, I was like, wait a minute. Why am I teaching? <laughs> what am I doing here? And so it, it really kind of became a, a passion of mine was like, I really want to do this. I really want to kind of get out of the classroom and I want to like focus more on helping businesses start cuz it's a lot easier than if kids can do it, if 8th graders can do it. If I if like I can get 110 8th graders to do something like this, and they don't even really want to do it. Imagine if you were to get a, a young adult or, you know, any person really for that matter, mm-hmm. who actually wants to do it, and you just kind of like lay it for them and show them and guide them. There's there's the education there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's where that's where both of us kind of merge into creating the productions, because there's the the customer service side, but then there's also like we we help our vendors understand what they're doing and how do you get to the next level of I think what the, you're doing
1: I think this is I think this is very important uh, to state that as people of color starting a small business we are operating uh, from the starting point uh, behind uh, those with yeah we're already operating at a deficit it's uphill it's uphill climb we do not most of us, a majority of us do not have generational wealth, generational knowledge, institutional knowledge that networks that have been cultivated over, again, generations to automatically be able to plug, be plugged in to a scenario where they can succeed. So how are we creating these opportunities where we can empower each other uh, in that in that process? Uh, starting a small business is a lot of work. So the more people you have as a support system to learn from, the better. Let's have a teaching moment. So for any aspiring small business owners, can you walk us through what steps you took like I know you got to get incorporated you got to have a website like what are kind of what's like the the small business starter toolkit that you that you implemented to start Lolita productions?
3: Wow that's that's big. Um, yeah. I think I feel that you know, first of all, you got to kind of be clear about what you want to do. And not necessarily in the sense of you have to know everything that you want to do, but what's your first project that you're going to tackle? What's your product? Um, and what avenues are you going to use to get that product or or skill out there? Um, I think networking is a big deal. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm not that great at is networking and Marissa is amazing at it and so she's pushed, no, she's pushed me out of my shell. She's shaking her head right now but she's (laughs) pushed me out of my shell to interact with people that I normally would not because I will, I'll speak to you and I'm great at that but like, that networking piece, you have to get comfortable with talking to people. Mm -hmm. As a small business person, if you do not speak to people, whether or not your items are amazing or beautiful or gorgeous, you have to get comfortable with speaking with people and creating a connection because you are the brand. And remembering that you are the brand is the biggest piece of making your business a success. You, customer service, the brand, it's all you. And you make or break yourself in that aspect. Money can be an issue, But if you have an amazing product and you are genuine with people and give them your story, whatever you're comfortable with, they're bound to buy into it. Maybe not everybody, but they're bound to buy into it. Hmm.
1: Marissa, what about you?
5: I think to kind of write off of what she was saying at the end with your story, the articles of incorporation, becoming an LLC, deciding like all of that. That's legal paperwork. That is really for the man. I'm going to be very honest. Mm -hmm. I don't believe necessarily in, you know, a super formalized business plan and going to a bank and getting a loan and doing all of that because that, that then adds the pressure that you need to be making money to pay off that, that debt that you're acquiring. We started off with nothing and we, we, we started off with nothing, but we started out with a lot at the same time. We had people are value. Everything that people see online, that is us. We don't pay for advertisement, and we tell people that because then they understand why it's so important for them to like, to share. We use social media for what it's intended for, to spread a message, uh, whether that be a bodega, whether that be a fundraiser, whether that be putting on our, our um, artisans or our vendors who we work with, we really wanted to showcase them, not us, because it's not about us, it's about them. And give them the marketing and the publicity that they deserve. So if I were to say you, if you if what you would need, I think the biggest thing would be is to know your story and share your story, to her point because the more that you do that, the easier it becomes to then identify what it is that you're going to be doing and realize that it might change. It's going to change actually. And change is inevitable because that's evolution. So if you're not changing, then there's a problem, right? Like anything that's ever stood the same doesn't last the test of time. Things always evolve. And so you need to evolve. And what might have started off like a bodega or a fiesta de maíz, then turning into a bodega to then, you know, us being able to host community pop-ups and then also mentor small businesses. Like we didn't go into all of this with that in mind, but it presented itself and we saw an opportunity and then we went with it. So,
1: Well, you all have been very good at... Taking taking the opportunity or the proverbial brass ring, as some people would say, because I feel like I first knew who you both were when I was trying to figure out if the PR fest was happening again this year, and I came across I think an Instagram video or something. You y'all were probably <laughs> getting crap about the price or something like that. Yes, it was something you're addressing <laughs> that I liked it because I was like, yeah, we should absolutely. How come the Cuban fest can charge whatever they want? Right, and
3: fifteen bucks a yeah, day. Yeah,
1: come on now. Come on, yeah, people. come on, come, come on. on get with it so i was immediately interested in what y'all do and i know so you do the bodega you got the web pop-up you have um the, you did the fiesta de Maíz. Uh, a couple other big things y'all are doing what's next what's coming up next i know there's a big event happening this weekend tell us a little bit about that
5: so when we first started everything um, and obviously, you know, looking into Lolita, knowing her birthday is pretty important. And so when we first sat down, I when we were watching videos, like it was a late night, and I I told her I I was I turned to Brianna I'm like, she's turning a hundred in November, and like it was like some unknown thing, like I had just discovered gold or something, and so she's like, yeah, I was like. So we have to throw her a birthday party, duh. And so this this
3: has been a recurring theme throughout this entire year. This entire yeah. year. It has been this we need to do this for the centenario. We this this would sound great. How do we um how do we incorporate or build up to the centenario? Like literally, this has been the focal point of our year not to say that the other projects were not important but it all reverted back to this event at some point
5: so i'm super nervous because it's coming up right (laughs) right and so with
3: the kind of like what
5: we were talking about earlier about like putting yourself out there and being okay with with the critics or like the critiques that you're going to be receiving um we understand who she is and so it was super important that we did it we felt like we do it as, as best as possible as we can. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, Centenario, Lolita de Lares Centenario, is on November 16th from five to 10. We're asking for um, $35 donations um, if they go to the Eventbrite, $40 at the door. And the event includes so much. So we've spoken to artists throughout the year and explained <laughs> what we were doing and we've asked them to create a piece that represents a, t- a point in time in Lolita's life. Because she was so multifaceted, that meant when you look her up, you're only really going to find specific points in time and a, a reoccurring image of who this woman, who this woman, the media portrayed. But she was so much more than just Congress. And then even though the, the event in Congress um, in 1954 was definitely a defining point in her life. She, uh, was a beauty queen and she was a daughter of, um, of a family that was, um, growing coffee and she experienced trauma and she was a mother and she was a seamstress and she had multiple, you know, uh, men as her as the father of her children. And after incarceration, she came back and, and she did even more and still continue to press the issue and showcase that we are colonized, that we deserve our independence, and that what is happening is not okay. It's never been okay, and it's not okay. And so we wanted our, our artisans to have the ability to pick a point in time in her life, uh, showcase it through their work. And so there's going to be a timeline of her life through the works of other people. And so you're going to have a variety. There's going to be so many things. I'm so excited.
3: So we're going to have um, Urban Pilon, who is going to be our chef for the night. He, uh, that $35 includes uh, plate, plates of food by him. Um, we are going to do a... Can I just add one more thing?
5: He even spoke to people who took care of her to come up with this menu.
4: Did of, he really of her
5: favorite food. So every Word. everything wow. is intentional. That's when I cool. speak of intention, I'm talking about the everything from the food to the um the artwork that you're going to see. Everyone's going to be um, the the music, the vibe, it's all with the intent to really show who she was and our understanding of who she was through her life
3: um so there's also going we're going to be crowning her casica lolita there's going to be an uh, awards portion to the night we're awarding three um three women who are pretty great or enlarge large in our community so uh, melissa luis claudio who is the principal at albizu campos high school she is uh the recipient of our la maestra award we are also awarding um la activista award uh, which is to a local activist, and Betty Guevara is our recipient. Uh, she's pretty well-known in this community, is a staple. She used to work at the Boys and Girls Club and is on her way to Puerto Rico. So we want to make sure that she uh, gets her roses while she's alive and here and present. Um, and then the last award is La Voz de Cambio, and that is being awarded to Senator Iris Martinez um, for all her work with La Casa Puerto
1: so the Centenario, what's the, is it Lolita Lares Centenario Celebration Fundraiser? Is that the full name? Yes. Ah, okay. So the Centenario is this Saturday, November 16th, 2019, people, 5 to 10 p.m. Get the early bird tickets, save yourself five bucks, but if you forget, 40 bucks at the door, it's at Dojo Studios, am I getting the address right here, 2951 West Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60622. Yes, sir. All right, Perfect. I know we're just about out of time, but let's do a quick lightning round. If you could describe Lolita Lebron in one word, what would it be?
5: Fierce, resilient.
1: There it is, people. We want to just thank the cohefas of Lolita Productions for being in the studio today. Brianna and Marissa, thank you both for coming on.
3: Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you so much. We'll see you guys soon. There she's there,
1: for those of our listeners that are not familiar with you, can you introduce yourself for us?
4: Well, I can introduce myself in a very simple way. I, I am Puerto Rican who chose to serve Puerto Rico uh, in its struggle for independence.
1: Can you tell us about Lolita Lebrón and was there anything that she did that served as inspiration for you?
4: Well. I, I, came, I came back from Vietnam in 1967, oh, okay? I, I still had the dad the, 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 that, that comes into your mind and doesn't, doesn't leave you, and that's the experience of war. Uh, and I had made me a promise when I, when I came back from Vietnam to learn about Vietnam as much as I could because I I had no knowledge of what Vietnam was when I went to Vietnam and I needed that. The the community had changed a little bit because of the rise of 1966, the year before. And some of my friends were hanging out, and we're talking about Puerto Rican independence already. And uh, there was this Puerto Rican nationalist and he saw us, you know, talking about Puerto Rican independence. So he, you know, he once in a while he stopped, and, and that day he stopped, and he said, hey, I have recordings of the Puerto Rican nationalists. If you guys want to hear it, you're, you, you're, you're welcome to come with me to the, to my house. So we, we went to the house, and we're listening to the tapes. And all of a sudden, there's uh, a voice that said, Yo vine a Washington no a matar a nadie, sino a dar mi vida por Puerto Rico. And that voice had the rhythm, you know, for me, of an automatic weapon, so ta 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 And as I listened, you know, I started to to say, you know, well, if if a Puerto Rican woman is willing to give her life for Puerto Rico, what should we be doing?
7: Yo soy Lolita Lebrón, presidenta del Partido Nacionalista de Puerto Rico, exprisionera política de los Estados Unidos. Soy la que dirigió el ataque al Congreso de los Estados Unidos de Norteamérica el primero de marzo de 1954 en defensa de la liberación del pueblo de Puerto Rico,
5: ah, Se saquen esas bombas atómicas del medio del mundo que ustedes se las dieron al mundo y después que se las dieron, no, yo le voy a decir a usted, voy a terminar ya. No quisiera que en mi país nadie me tuviera que mandar a callar por defender la libertad de mi país. Y ella no se ha encontrado todavía. Señores, no hay odio, no hay nada, solamente lo que hay es el derecho y el
2: deber de un pueblo a ser libre y nada, nada, nada trabajará aquí, nada más Que la liberación total y plena del pueblo de Puerto Rico. Muchas gracias.
1: We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. I know Oscar and Jose don't do social media, but what about you all? How can people keep up with you?
7: My favorite thing to use is Instagram. Yeah. Um, it's just Reyes Poetry, all one word, R-E-Y-E-S Poetry. You can find me everywhere on there. I think my number is up there too. Uh, and then my company, my media company, um, kind of like a uh, company that like works out of Detroit, but we do, we're starting to branch out and do some stuff, hopefully in Chicago, soon in New York, is We Are Culture Creators. Just We Are culture creators and you can find that on our social media on instagram and you can link to our website and everything else we do we try to make sure that we update as much stuff as we can
0: okay so our company's name is enfocarte um we have a facebook page uh you can find us as enfocarte inc and that with that same name you can find us on instagram We post our schedules and uh, future performances. And if you want to bring us uh, to a state or to your community or to your school, you can uh, contact us through there. Our email is enfocarteinc at gmail.com. And uh, we'll make arrangements and try to make it possible to to keep doing the play wherever we can. Uh, Personally, you can find my fan page uh, with my full name. Viviana Torres Mestey. Um I also put the, uh, the schedule of other things that I'm doing. I have a book. I have other plays as well and other projects. And I update everything through my page. And you can see my photography portfolio and Instagram at VTM Photography. So those are my social media.
1: Brianna, Marissa, whoever wants to go first. Uh, how can our audience keep up with you? How can they keep up with Lolita Productions?
3: So um, you can follow us on our website, www.lolitaproductions.org. Um, my personal Instagram is ramire 27 um, and I'm on Facebook as Brianna Ramirez Smith.
5: And you can find um, us also on Facebook as Lolita Productions. You can find us on Instagram as laslolitas773. We also have a Lolita's Bodega Instagram. And you can find me through any of those avenues because somehow I'm tagged in something. So yeah, that's where you can find me.
1: (laughs) Right on. Perfect. Thank you all for being on. Special thanks to all our guests who took time out of their days to be on the podcast. Jose Lopez, Michael Reyes, Oscar Lopez, Brianna Ramirez-Smith, Marisa Diaz-Arce, and Viviana Torres, thank you all for being on. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at and following us at Baseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuidate!
6: What is just, what is right, and what is equal. And tears for you, Lolita. Tears for your strength, endurance, and constant resistance. Yes, Lolita, you may cry now. Tears for the times away from loved ones. Tears for the times they tried to break you when you stood fearless. Challenging an empire, standing like a mountain against the hurricane's attack. Tears for the times that you could not feel the warmth of the sun or the warmth of a loving hand. Tears for lost memories. Tears to fill the ocean's depths. Tears for the times that you wanted to cry, but could not, would not, to show them that you were unbreakable. Yes, Lolita, you may cry now, tears of sadness and of joy, because our freedom will come. Lolita, you may cry now, and if you cannot, you are home, and we will cry for you.